This episode of On Comedy Writing is brought to you by HBO on Amazon. What if I told you we could combine your love for premium cable with your dependence on online shopping? I bet you'd go pretty crazy. Well, time to go fucking nuts, because now we can. An HBO subscription includes instant streaming of unlimited access to addictive dramas, hilarious comedies, movies, and so much more. Fans of this show will love watching Veep, Silicon Valley, Mr. Show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is back and I, I've been enjoying. I think it's doing okay. I think, I think some older episodes are better, but this is certainly still good. I love Curb. Uh, <laughs> I like how I put my review of Curb into this HBO on Amazon ad. They actually... Curb filmed right outside my apartment in L.A. like seven months ago, so I can't wait to see the outside of my apartment in the show. Uh, you know, this should be an ad for Curb. I wouldn't have said it was okay. I would have said it. Anyway, Amazon is offering a free seven-day trial for HBO, and you can get it by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash HBO. After the trial, you get unlimited access to anything on HBO for just $14.99 a month. That's a good deal for HBO. My parents pay for HBO, and I assume they're paying more than that. Once again, get your seven-day free trial for HBO by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash HBO. It's not TV. It's HBO, which is brought to you by Amazon. This is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. On comedy writing... Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast about the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson. We've got a great episode, but first, the best way to support this show is by going to boardlockaudio.com slash oncomedywriting. Click the support our artist button and shop on Amazon like you normally would, and we get a little kickback. Our guest this week is Sean Connery, member of the legendary UCB improv team The Swarm and writer on shows like Dog Bites Man, Key and Peele, and Gentleman Lobsters. If you like this interview, check out the ones we did with other OG UCB New York guys like Chris Kula and Anthony King. So here is Sean Connery. Uh, Sean, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Alan. Uh, where are you from originally? I am from a town called New Rochelle, New York, which is right outside New York City. It's about a half an hour north of New York City on the train. So, Would, would you go to New York a lot growing up? Uh, well, I went to high school in the Bronx, oh, so wow. uh, I would go down there every day. And then, yeah, once in a while we'd go into the city, um, probably more than we should have when I was young. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I love New York. Uh, were, were you interested in comedy at a, at a young age? Yeah, I was always a fan. I, um, you know, I my friends and I were huge Steve Martin fans. It was right at the height of his his success. I was probably ten, maybe or whatever. Um, I was a fan of as a kid of uh, I loved the Pink Panther movies, the, okay, the yeah. Peter Sellers Pink Panther movies, which were just the funniest thing I had ever seen. Uh, and I actually had a friend who was a super super creative guy who. I don't know how he thought of this, but he got a tape recorder and we would go in his basement from the time I was like seven or eight, we'd go in his basement and just make up shows. So I feel like I was one of the original, uh, podcasters. <laughs> uh, what kind of shows would they be? Just silly, you know, uh, soap operas or, you know, sitcom type stuff, or like we'd pretend to be DJs all the time, just whatever was 
stuff we had heard before you know Mm -hmm. it definitely wasn't interview programs like this you know (laughs) like Derek did you think it was weird in (laughs) second grade today when Mrs. Freeman asked us to write in cursive (laughs) oh that'd be really interesting I think I think the uh I think the tape still exists somewhere so did you uh did you know you wanted to do something in comedy as a career I didn't know that that really was a career I think uh and I also didn't know what I wanted to do you know, I kind of drifted a bit as I went through life. I mean, I definitely when I when I got into high school, uh, I started doing plays, you know, like I was in all the the musicals and all the comedies and and I loved that. And then when I got to college, uh, there was a sketch group at my college. And uh, when I was a freshman in college, this girl who was a senior, we were in HMS Pinafore together because we were uh, doing a Gilbert and Sullivan show that year. And she uh, she said, oh, you're so funny. You should be in our, our group. It was There was only one group in the whole school. And so she went and talked to the guys who ran the group. And they're like, no, 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 we don't have freshmen in the group. <laughs> but when I was a junior, I finally was allowed into the group. So. What, what, what school did you go to? I went to a school called Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. Okay, yeah. Uh so famous alumni are uh, Clarence Thomas and uh, Chris Matthews. Oh, so kind of both sides. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what was your major? I was an English major okay. for no for no reason. Yeah. Like I I literally checked a box when I was a senior in high school, and that was what I stayed for four years. Yeah. Um, I mean, I liked you know I liked to read and I liked to write, and I was like, oh, that might work. Uh, but it was never like, I was like, ah, oh, I really want to be, you know, I really want to get into 19th century Victorian literature, mm-hmm. you know? So you were doing a sketch. Was that kind of your main thing in college? No, because, uh, it's so funny to think back on this, but the sketch group would do one show a year and it took us like four or five months to write that one show. <laughs> Uh, when I think now about the lack of productivity involved there, it's it's pretty insane. Uh, but I did still continue to do lots of theater while I was there. Mm-hmm. We had uh, there were by the time I got to college, there were competing theater groups. There was the 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 legit theater people, and then the alternative college theater people, yeah. and that was what I was was the alternative college theater people. Well, well it was like alternative. Like you guys just wouldn't do like the, the stuff the old plays. Or? No, no, no. We would. We would oh. do like. But you do like reimaginations. Do, we, no, we do like musicals and stuff. Like oh. these guys were doing like, you know, uh, John Guare and okay. Sam Shepard, and we okay. were like, "Fuck you," you know. Like we, I'm sorry, am I allowed to say "fuck" on yeah, here? Yeah, 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 yeah fuck. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> uh, but you know, they were doing legit. Right. Like legit plays and we were just doing goofy, you know, musicals and stuff. Mm-hmm. So so I was a big musical theater fan all, mm. the whole time I was growing up. With um the the sketch group, I've noticed I've had a couple people on who were like in sketch groups in college. Mm-hmm. And they it's all usually one show and it's super long. Mm-hmm. Was that the case? I, I think so. I don't remember how long it was, yeah. but it was definitely probably it certainly was way longer than it should have been. Yeah. And there was stuff in it like, uh, you know, this was always the thing that bothered me once I got to be more familiar with sketch comedy. But like, you know, blackout on one sketch and then like four minutes of music while people Uh, changed costumes and stuff, you know. So there was never like a flow to the show. 
Uh, so we we did everything wrong, you know. Yeah. So, so your only frame of reference for sketches are kind of like Saturday Night Live. That was it. That's it. Yeah. That was it. And I never even really watched it that much when I was a kid, you know. Um, right. But that was like the one thing that was going on at that time. Interesting. So do you have any sketches that you like remember that you wrote during that time? Uh, I do. I remember the sketch. The one sketch that I remember writing was a sketch about studying. Uh, and it was like how it basically was the, the course of a kid's college career. So freshman year, he was like very devoted to studying and whatever. Sophomore year, he... Uh, he wanted to study, but this girl just wanted to have sex with him. And then junior year, he wanted to study, but his roommate just wanted to get drunk. And then senior year, it was like, why are we even doing this? And that was basically the pretty hilarious, uh, but, but it was the kind of thing where, you know, all the, everybody who came to see the show was kids who went to the school and all of them were like, yeah, that is true. (laughs) You know? Uh, so uh, so after you graduate, uh, what are you thinking you're going to do? Uh, I had some vague idea of how I was going to be an actor mm-hmm. in New York City. Well, that's not even true. I mean, I I, I left school. I didn't graduate, by the way, okay. uh, on time. I eventually got my degree, but I failed a class second semester senior year, which was a fucking nightmare. That's um, unheard of. Yeah. They usually just pass you on at that point. Yeah. I mean, this guy really had it in for me. Yeah. Uh, but so then I went and I traveled for a while and I worked a bunch of different odd jobs so that I could do, go to different places. And um, but then it was like a year later and I was like, you know, I come from a very conventional family and they were like, you need to figure out what you're doing, you know. <laughs> and so I had this vague idea that I was going to be an actor in New York and so I moved to New York City, but in the meantime, you know, my my family was like, yeah, you can do that as a hobby, that's fine, but you need to have a real job. So I got a job as a junior high school teacher. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, how was that? It was rough. Yeah. It was rough. It was, uh, I mean, I loved it, but it was very difficult, especially the first year or two. Uh, I did it for six years. Oh, wow. And... Uh, yeah, it was. I mean, I wrote a whole show about it that was that went to the HBO Comedy Festival oh, in cool. Aspen in in a long time ago. Um, but in the meantime, I was like trying to do acting stuff, and immediately, as I was trying to do that, you know, there's the backstage was an actual physical paper back then, and I would go pick up backstage every week and look at the ads for what they were looking for, and I saw one week this group this ad that was like do you think you can be funny on the spot? You know? And I was like, <laughs> do yeah. And, uh, they said, just bring a picture and resume to this audition. And this is how little I knew about acting or anything. Like I said, I was going to be an actor, but I didn't know what I was doing. I showed up to this audition with a, like a photograph, a four by five photograph okay. of myself from a, in front of a mountain in Switzerland and a resume <laughs> of all the jobs I had had when I was in college. Uh, but it was an improv group and I got into the group and uh, that was the beginning of the end, yeah. you know. What, what what kind of a group was it? Was it like long form? No, 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 no. It was short form. Uh, it was uh, it was very, very short form. Um, it was, you know, it was... Uh, the, the the go-to reference, even though I don't think it even existed at that time, was 
is whose line is it anyway kind of stuff. Uh, in fact, the first show I ever did with them was at a club called Grandpa Al's Shooting Stars. And Grandpa Al was the grandpa on the Munsters. And he, oh, wow. And he owned several clubs and restaurants. And he owned this club in Yonkers. And it was my very first show. I'd never been on stage doing improv before. And so I really didn't know what I was doing. And somebody had left the group. And I think what they would do is sometimes they would, I mean, it was improv, but I think sometimes what they would do is they would they would do funny things in rehearsal and then they would just be like, right. do that again in the show, you know? And this guy had a bit he did, which they all loved. And so right before I went on stage, this is so... By the way, this is so un-PC, but remember, this is like almost 30 years ago. Okay. Uh, so they did a bit called Not So Special Olympics, where everybody had their little event that they would do. And the event that they wanted me to do, right before I went on stage, the director of the group was like, okay, you're going to go on stage, and you're going to be the man with the world's tightest butt cheeks. <laughs> so just get up there and tell everybody you're you're squeezing a dime between your butt cheeks and and I was and so anyway I you know didn't know what I was doing and did that but it was horrific but you know I loved you I loved, loved improvising <laughs> no I did not love that I didn't and I'm sure I didn't do it right do you know what I mean like yeah. it was a bit that this guy did and he had probably had a whole thing worked out around it and I was just like hi I'm the man with the world's tightest butt cheeks I have a dime between my butt cheeks thank you you know yeah, yeah. and they were like ugh this kid's never gonna make it. <laughs> so, so you, um, so you immediately, so you start loving short form. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long are you in that short form group? Uh, I was in that group. I mean, again, it's so funny to think back on because we didn't have access to the internet back then, so mm-hmm. I didn't know that there was other stuff going on in the world. So for uh, you didn't even know about like say Second City or anything. No, I had no idea. So I. Uh, or I guess I probably had heard of it, but yeah. I didn't know it was a thing you could go and study and be involved with. So I worked with that group for about three years. And we would literally do a show maybe once every month or two. And we'd have one rehearsal before the show. So not a way to get better at stuff, you know. Um, and finally, I got to the point where I was like, I, this is not enough for me. So I... I started my own group down in the city and rented a theater Oh wow! at 11 o'clock. You know, like it was a theater that had regular stuff going on. And the guy was like, I can give it to you for this much at 11 o'clock on Friday nights. Mm-hmm. So I had a show at 11 o'clock on Friday nights. Um, my parents were there. My mom uh, would bake cookies and my dad would, and my little brother too, who was like 14 or 15 at the time would take money at the door <laughs> And uh, and that ran for about eight weeks. But while that was going on, there was another show called Chicago City Limits, which was like an off-Broadway show that did short form. And they had an audition, and I went and auditioned for them. And they did not care for me in the audition, but somebody who was in my group who was very talented, a woman by the name of Amy Wilson, uh, they loved her. And they were like, let's go see her in a show. So they came and saw my show, and they oh, realized I that I could actually do stuff and so she and I both got hired into that company in and we did that well I did that for four years she did it for about a year but this was all before UCB came to New York so I had no idea that there was this other 
thing. And that was my whole goal was to get into the main company at Chicago City Limits. And it's still all short form. All short form. So uh, I guess when was the last time you did short form? I have no idea. Like a long time ago. Long time ago, yeah. Um, and I and you know we were in the touring company, which meant that we traveled all over the United States doing shows in front of thousands of people. You know, and I did. I loved it. I I'd never. It never occurred to me that there was something else. And then UCB came to town, and they had a sketch show, and I read about it in Time Out New York, and it was like you got to go see this sketch show. And I went, and I liked it, but it didn't. You know, I was like, oh, yeah, that's good. That was funny. And then I went to see their improv show, and it fucking blew my mind. You know, Cat. I was like, holy shit, you can do that? Do you remember who the who was, like, in the first Cat you saw? I don't. Uh, I remember who was in the first UCB show I saw because, you know, obviously it was the four of them, but Matt Walsh was not there. It was a guy named Bill Cott was filling in for him. Oh, so wow. I always... Uh, I always give Walsh shit that if he had been there, maybe I would have not <laughs> ever come back. Yeah. So, um, when you see the first improv show, and you, like this is like a whole different genre, like a yeah. whole different thing. Yeah. Well, it was it was like uh, it was like all of a sudden the training wheels were off the bike, you know. Mm-hmm. And so there were similarities, but it was so much freer and more interesting and more individual and coming from inside each person and uh yeah i immediately was like this is this is what i want to do you know i've been living a lie (laughs) and were they teaching classes yet at that time i don't know if they were but they started pretty soon after that um and i was in i don't know if i was in their first class but i was pretty much one of the first classes Mm -hmm. Um, and I did that for, I took, I think, I don't know, three or four classes with them. And what was that like? Was that like, uh, it was great. I loved it. I loved it. Um, it was a little weird because I felt like, and this is going to sound obnoxious, but it was true. I had been performing so much and a lot of the people in the class had never been on stage before. Mm -hmm. Um, so there was like a disparity there, but uh, it was just, you know, and, and also it was an interesting thing to try something where you felt like you had this skill before. And then all of a sudden you had no idea what you were doing, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and also very early on at that time, uh, I would go to ask hat sometimes and they would be short of players and Walsh would go, Hey, do you want to sit in with us? Oh, and I'd be like, sure. No idea what I was doing. Like embarrassing, you know? <laughs> Like, I'm sure if any, any, you know, if anybody had seen it, they would be like, that guy should not be on stage. That may be true now as well. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so, how long was it before you um, formed a team? Uh, I formed a team pretty quickly. We, we had a team called the Hammerheads, and it was, uh, it was some guys from uh, Chicago City Limits and some guys from class that we had met. And then a girl I was dating at the time, and we immediately started trying to do what the UCB was doing with, you know, not a tremendous amount of success. But we practiced and we tried and we did shows, and then that didn't sort of work out. And then on uh, February 8th, 1998, uh, we were summoned to a meeting, and that was when the Swarm uh, was formed, which was my group that I have, have been in ever since then. 
Yeah, so so they were. It was formed by UCB. By no, it, well, it was Amy Poehler wanted to direct a very specific show, uh-huh. and she asked two people, Michael Delaney and Andy Secunda, to put together a team for her to direct this show. So it was really Delaney and Secunda who picked. You know, Delaney picked his friends. Secunda picked his friends. And then at the end of all that, uh, they needed one more person, and that was me. <laughs> so you were the, the last person at it? I was still on the fence, and they were like, <laughs> all right, kid, get in here. <laughs> so uh, what, what was that specific show that she was directing? <laughs> well, that's, that's a very controversial subject oh, okay. with The Swarm. Uh, you know, Amy loved hip-hop, and she wanted to do a show that, like hip-hop, would incorporate, you know, mix in, sample things and... and uh, and so the first the first day we had that meeting, she gave each of us a cassette tape, like a mixtape that she had made with all these songs on it that she wanted everybody to listen to and, you know, say, like, this is this is the feel I want the show to have. Um, and, you know, it's just funny because I loved hip hop. Like I went to see the Run DMC and the Beastie Boys in 87 and like I've been into it for a long time. Nobody else in the group had any interest in it, you know? <laughs> yeah. They were like, play Freebird, you know? So when they heard this music, they were just like, what is this? You know, so wow. looking back at it now, they all think of the show as a colossal failure, which is not how I see <laughs> yeah. it at all, you know? And you, you guys did have, uh, I know, like a pretty uh, critically acclaimed show that you did for a while. Yeah, five years uh, at Friday nights at 10 at the UCB Theater in New York. And what was the format of that show? Well, I think it changed a bit over time. But when we first started, God, it's hard to remember these things. But we would do one half that was a mono scene, uh, which was something we worked very hard on. And then one half that was what we called an atomic herald, which meant that it would start as a herald and this then just explode. Oh, wow. So, That's interesting. And so, at what point do you do you start uh, doing sketch stuff? Um, I think around that time. I mean, there was a guy that I worked with at Chicago City Limits. He and I both got into the company at the same time, and we were sort of roommates on the road. Who's one of the funniest people I've ever met? A guy by the name of Eddie Pepitone, and he and I started doing a two-man sketch show. I think we did it in '96 and in '97. Um, and it was definitely, he was not taking classes at UCB or anything like that, but it was definitely influenced by UCB just because I had started there. But I'm sure if I look back at it now, I would go, oh, there was a lot of other stuff we could have done, you know? What was like, uh, the, your writing process with him during, during that show? Um... I think we would just get together in a, you know, uh, Chicago City Limits had a classroom and we would go to there and just fuck around and see what we came yeah. up with and then try to, you know, tighten it up a little bit. So it was definitely kind of an improv thing yeah. sketch. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't like sitting down and yeah. going like, John enters, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. nothing like that. Do you uh, still like to write that way or is it kind of a mix of stuff now? Um... I think it's a mix. Like I, you know, I do a lot of stand up now and not so much sketch anymore, but a lot of sitcom writing and I find it difficult sometimes to sit down in front of the computer and start writing. Um in fact, recently I've started writing again when I'm writing scripts. I've started writing freehand, you know, uh because I just it puts me too much in my head and I'm not good enough as a typist to sort of keep up with what I want to write and I'm one of those unfortunate people 
who is obsessed with grammar and spelling and usage. So if I fuck something up as I'm writing on the computer, I have to go back and fix it instead of just firing ahead. Whereas if I write by hand, that's not a problem. But when I do stand-up stuff, sometimes I'll just go up on stage with a premise and see where it goes, mm-hmm. you know? Whereas I used to literally write it out line by line by line, you know? Wow. So do you find... Now that you kind of not writing it out so much is, is more helpful, especially when you're performing it. Um, I think it makes it. Le- yeah, I do because I feel like it makes you connect with the audience more. Yeah. You know, you always want to have that conversational feel to what you're doing, and when you're sitting there writing it out, that doesn't feel conversational. Even when you're saying it, it doesn't feel conversational. You know, it feels very uh, stylized or whatever. So when when you write a script. Uh, with you know fully out do you then uh type it back up and as you type it up that's almost like a second draft yeah it's great yeah that doesn't make sense because as i'm putting it in i'm totally changing things and making things better and i'm like oh this is you know it's a very helpful thing for me Mm. yeah that makes a lot of sense Mm -hmm. i should do that uh so you taught sketch at ucb i did and you currently teach a, a spec a spec writing, spec writing class. class yeah. yeah. What are your like uh, teaching methods that you use? Uh, I tell everybody not to chew gum. Yeah. And to stay single file when we have to leave for a fire drill. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it, it, sketch and sitcom writing. I try to teach as if I'm running a writer's room, mm-hmm. and just have people all contribute to whatever. Um, and then I always try to maintain. <clears throat> which may not actually be true. I always try to maintain that I know more than everybody else. So <laughs> here's my notes on the thing, yeah. you know? Um, but I try to stay open to everybody's ideas, you know, because I think that's the whole point of having a bunch of people working on something at the same time is it's not just your idea. It's your idea with everybody else's input, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so your first uh, TV show credit was on Love Inc. Yes. How did that, how did you get that job? Well, um, I moved out here in two thousand four, and in well, it, why'd you why'd you move out here? Because uh, in two thousand three, I had made a stupid little short film where I repurposed footage from the great classic. Casablanca and made like a four minute film called Rick's birthday. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, (laughs) and, uh, somebody, Jake Fogelnest was running a show in New York at that time. And he asked if he could show my, my short, I wasn't even going to be there. And I said, sure. And he did. And there was another comic there that night whose agent came to see him and his agent saw the short that I had made and said, let's have lunch tomorrow. So I went and I met with this guy and he, this is so convoluted, but he was like, if you're out in LA, let me know and I can set up some meetings. So I came out here to do cross balls. I was, I helped out on cross balls a little bit. And while I was here, I was here for three weeks and my agent was, or he wasn't even my agent at the time. He was like, let me set up some meetings. And I had like 15 meetings in the course of three weeks with networks and producers and this and that. And I was like, I got to be in L.A. That's where shit's happening. And so I decided to move to L.A., came out here, and I think I've had like two meetings since then, you know. <laughs> uh, 
but that's why I moved out here. Mm-hmm. And then I was out here for a while uh, trying to, you know, I went to IO and I auditioned for a team at IO, which was a humbling experience, but they took me on the team <laughs> and uh, I auditioned with all the level three students who had right. been performing for a year after I'd been performing in New York for 12 years. <laughs> and, uh, they, uh, so my friend Andy Secunda, who had been on the swarm with me and is still on the swarm with me, um, he sold a show to UPN. Uh, and he said, if you have a script, I can try to get it in front of the producers. And I did have a script. I had written a spec Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh, wow. And I'd written many specs over the years. Like I had written. Friends and Frasier and I actually wrote a Drew Carey show which who would ever read that uh, <laughs> what, 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 what do you, what's like the key to writing a good spec script of, a, of an existing show oh there's a lot of keys yeah. but uh, I think the main thing is well <laughs> oh, sorry about that the main thing is you should sneeze in the middle of talking about it um, <laughs> I mean first of all the truth is Specs are not really the thing to do anymore to get work. Everybody's looking for original pilots. But the good thing about writing a spec, and this is what I always say in my spec class, is it takes a lot of the variables out of the equation. Like, you don't have to worry about the world. You don't have to worry about the voices of the characters. You don't have to worry about the locations because those are already all there. Mm. And I feel like when people write original stuff, they have to invent all of that and it becomes it becomes completely overwhelming and i say that as somebody who has read many many original pilots and found very very few to be any good right uh but i think writing a spec you have to know the know the voice of the show and find a way to still express yourself through that voice so Andy did manage to get my spec in front of the producers of the show. And then it was just a thing of like, it was kind of a nightmare because it, for like a week and a half, it was like, you're hired, you're not hired, you're hired, you're not hired. Hey, pal, sorry to tell you that they're not going to take you on. And then the next day, hey, it looks like you're back in the running. This could happen. Um, and then literally I I was told I was hired and I went in, and on the first day at lunchtime, my agents called me and said, don't go back after lunch because we're still trying to work out your deal. <laughs> it was it was very Hollywood. Uh, so, anyway, it all worked out. What was uh, that like as your first television job? It was my first job, was yeah. Was that kind of crazy uh, transition, or did you kind of, was it kind of... You felt ready when you were in the room? I definitely didn't feel ready. Like, I, I didn't understand how the process worked. I mean, that first season, we did, I think, 22 episodes. And I'm saying first season for me because it was the only season of Love, Inc. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we did 22 episodes. And it was really, for me, like going to grad school in television writing. You know, like, I think that's the only way you can really learn how the process works is to be in an actual room and see how it's, see how it's done. And was this job similar to the jobs you would later have? No, because I don't think I've really worked on a show that had that kind of a That's staff. It. No, no, no. Oh. Yeah, that too. We know ne- I've never worked on a show that had that many episodes. 
but also that just had that many people on staff writing all at the same time. The other writers' rooms I've worked in have been smaller than that. And do you like a smaller room in general? I think there's advantages to both. Yeah. You know? Um, the nice thing about a big room is that you just get way more input from people. Sometimes when you only have five writers in the room and there's, you know, a writing problem, there's just a long silence. Everybody's like trying to think it through. Whereas if there's 10 or 15 people in the room, somebody's always keeping the ball in the air, you know? Mm. So uh, the show got canceled. What- All right, take it easy, Alan. <laughs> I remember. What, what's it like when, when a show gets canceled as like a writer? Um, it's, it's not fun, yeah. you know? Uh, I think with that show... And I think this is true a lot of times, although I think particularly for a show like that where it was a network show, there was a constant debate leading up to the cancellation of like, well, our numbers are good or we could do this. You know, people are always talking about that. And that is, you know, it's like when you're when you're a waiter and I've never been a waiter, but. I've heard from people who are waiters that if it's a particularly slow night, all everybody does is talk about, well, it's a Tuesday and a lot of people don't. And then somebody else is like, it's a little wet outside. You know, maybe that's why nobody's here. It's just pure speculation about stuff that you have no control over, which is not very productive and not very helpful, you know? Um, And people can really spin out of control on that stuff. So, but then when you hear like, okay, you're done, it's painful, you know? So, uh, when the show ends, like, what are you doing then? Are you, are you just looking for another gig to writing gig or more acting or, um, whatever, you know, uh, you know, that's, that's something I have never been good at. Like there are people who work. And they work at one job, and as soon as that job ends, they're on another job, and another job, and another job, and that's not—that's never been my thing. Um, I've never—I've fi- never sussed out exactly how to do that. Um, so when I, when a job ends for me, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll try to figure out what I want to do next, and I'll do some stand-up, and I'll do some improv, and then maybe I'll teach a class, or I'll teach a couple classes, and hope for something else to come along. You know. So after that, you wrote on Dog Bites Man. Yes. Uh, what was that like? It was fun. It was fun. Uh, it was the four... The writing staff was very small. It was the four actors on the show. Andrew Savage, Zach Galifianakis, Matt Walsh, and 80 Miles. And then there were, I think, three other writers or four maybe other writers. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would just sit in a room and try to come up with stuff or get separated into different rooms and try to come up with stuff and come back together. Uh, but that was very different from writing a sitcom because, you know, that was a prank show basically. And it was like, it was like basically the way I thought of that was like, it was writing a tree of response possibilities. So you're going to say this to this person. And if he says, yes, you go this way. If he says, no, you go this way. And then you go to the no answer and you go, okay, he said no. So now you ask him this. And if he says, yes, you go this way. And if he says no, so you would create these long possibilities, you know? Yeah. Did you have any like uh, favorite uh, things that you wrote on that show? <laughs> uh, it was really fun to write. Yeah. Uh, but there was one that I particularly remember, and I don't remember the specifics of it, 
and I don't even know if it actually aired, but it was uh, Matt Walsh played a character named Kevin Beacon. And Kevin Beacon was like this local anchorman who was incredibly conceited and full of himself. And he, at one point, he wrote his own autobiography and did like a book signing of it. So I wrote a long passage for him to read aloud in yeah. front of these. And so he would read it in front, like they did a real book signing and had people show up to it. And I wrote a long thing for him to read aloud in front of these people. And it was all just about how great he was and his car was incredible. And he couldn't believe how people worshipped him. And, you know, it was just really, really fun to write. And then they shot it and I got to see it and I loved it. It was so funny the way Walsh pulled it off. And uh, I think it was up online at one point, but I was never able to to find it after that. Do you like to kind of um, write like these interesting, like kind of... Um hybrid shows like you did stuff on uh crossballs like you mentioned and then i think you did stuff on players later. players yeah well players was interesting because you know <laughs> it was pitched and ostensibly made as an improvised show mm -hmm. but it was really pretty structured oh, you really? know yeah it was we had a pretty set structure for it um and then within that, the actors could improvise some and some of the stuff. And the difficulty with that is sometimes when actors are improvising, they go in a completely different direction or react in a real way in the moment that doesn't serve the story that's already set up. Uh, so, yeah, so Players was super fun to do, but it was a little different from like Dog Bites Man or something like that. When you say it's structured, do you mean it would be like, like a Curb Your Enthusiasm? Yeah, like very specific oh, okay. outline sure. with... With lots of the jokes already in the outline, and you know, yeah, so that's how we did that. Um, so yeah, uh, so yeah, you've worked on like a bunch of like, kind of, well, just not normal shows, like not your generic like thing. Seems appropriate. Uh, I'm not generic. <laughs> so do do you like uh, doing that? Do you like using like improv in that? Yeah, I think it's really fun, and I and I, you know, look, doing a network sitcom would be great financially you know uh because you can make so much money doing that stuff um but i know people who do that and who make a ton of money and who are completely miserable because they feel just disconnected from the process you know you have to do things a very specific way at the network level um and by the way if you're listening nbc i have a couple of ideas for shows <laughs> Uh, but what I've been able to do, and I've really enjoyed it, is to be much closer to my own sensibility a lot of the time. I mean, I've never had my own show, so that's not, you know, hopefully that'll happen at some point, And that's when I'll really be able to get to do what I want to do. But I love doing these shows when I am able to get in something that I'm like, that's like I have a friend who uh, who lives in Idaho and he's watched some of my stuff and he's like, I can totally hear your voice in the show. And, you know, that's great. That means it hasn't been flattened out. And I think that's what happens sometimes with with network stuff, you know. That's interesting. I've had a lot of people recently on the podcast who wrote books, mm -hmm. and they were talking about, yeah, this is like probably the most, like 100% my voice will ever be. Like the book. Things. The book, yeah. Yeah, of course, because it's just you writing right. in a room by yourself, mm -hmm. unless you're in a coffee shop. <laughs> uh, so you also worked at Key and Peele. Yeah. Uh, how did that happen? 
Um, that happened. I don't know how that happened. I mean, I guess they were just uh, uh, Ian and Jay, Ian Roberts and Jay Martel were looking for. Uh, oh, I know what it was. I, I applied for the job and didn't get it, and then they they got a big backlog of sketches that they really liked, but that weren't totally working, and they wanted to figure out how to make some of them work, and uh, so they they asked me to come in partway through the writing process and see what I could do with some of those. So, so was your task to just like work on those specifically, not really pitch new stuff? I mean, I did pitch new stuff. I don't think anything I pitched actually made it to the show. Uh, but mostly I think they wanted me to look at old stuff and see if I could get some of it to work. Did you end up getting some of the work? You know, who knows? Yeah. Uh, did they make it on the air? I don't think so. Oh, okay. I don't think so. Um, but, you know, it's a good credit to have. Yeah. Did, did you, uh, so you submitted a packet originally? Yes. And what kind of sketches were they, like, topical? Or? No, they were just weird, crazy sketches that I loved. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm trying to remember what I submitted to that show. I had one sketch that I loved that I submitted to that show that was so not in the voice of that show, uh, but I eventually uh, made it myself as a... Mm-hmm audio uh, sketch on a one-shot podcast I did by myself, but it was basically a a sketch about the scene in uh, Lord of the Rings where they get together to decide to form the Fellowship of the Ring. Okay. Uh, But one of the... The elf who shows up is actually a Christmas elf, not the wood elf, and so it's like he's the wrong elf who's not supposed to be there. Yeah. Yeah, so that was was one of the sketches I submitted for that. So... When you're submitting for shows, are you thinking quality at first or like stuff I really like, or are you thinking voice? I think I'm thinking quality, and I think maybe that's why I haven't worked on some of the bigger shows. <laughs> uh, because, you know, I want to do what I want to do. Right. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, that's probably not the best attitude to have, but because it is. It, People aren't. People don't give a shit what you want to do. They right. want. They want you to do what the show does. And I sometimes have trouble adapting to that. You know. Although that said, when I look back at, I was just looking at it the other day. The Curb Your Enthusiasm I submitted to Love Inc. Definitely the reason I got hired is because that sketch. I mean, sorry, that script totally fit the voice of that show. Mm. You know. But that was when I was younger and didn't have as huge of an ego. <laughs> Uh, so, so what was that writer's room like at Key Peel? Because, you know, uh, run by improv guys, everyone's got like an improv background. Yeah, and it, you know, I came into it two months in, so they had already established what the process was. <clears throat> and usually what it was, was they would have a meeting in the morning, uh, and everybody would, uh, you know do all the bits that they had established and spend, you know, time doing that. And then they would pitch ideas and then, uh, key and peel and Ian and Jay would say, these are the ones we like. These are the ones we don't like. Go write that, go write that, go write that. And everybody would go off to their own offices and write their sketches and then submit those. And then they would say, we like this. We don't like this. Mm. Um, so it wasn't like sitting in a writer's room and going, you know, let's say this line next. It was much more of an individualized process. What are the differences for you in writing sketch for television versus the stage? Um, 
I don't know that there are any for me. I think it's kind of the same thing. Uh, obviously, with television, you can go to different locations much more easily. Right. Whereas if you're doing it on stage, it's very hard to go like, first we're in this place, then we're in this place, then we're, in, you know, that, that famous, the first uh, episode of Key and Peele has that that sketch where they're like, I said, bitch, yeah, yeah. you know, and they're in the whole, the joke of that is that they're in different places each time when that happens. And I feel like that would be a very hard sketch to pull off on stage, right. yeah. you know? So I think you have to be location conscious on stage, whereas you don't have to be location conscious on television. How would you describe the voice of the Key and Peele uh, show? And like, would you say it's a difficult voice to write in? It was certainly difficult for me to write in. Mm -hmm. um, I think it is... I mean, it's hard to... I, I don't know how to put it into words, but there was a lot of stuff involving, um, let's say, cultures that were oppressed, mm -hmm. you know? Like, there was a lot of stuff about race. There was a lot of stuff about sex. Uh, and coming from the point of view of, like, let's make fun of this idea as opposed to, like, let's preach about this idea, right. you know? Yeah. Um, and they did it very effectively. And, you know, quite frankly, that's why a sketch like, hey, it's the wrong Christmas elf here at the Brotherhood of the Ring, at the Fellowship of the Ring is not going to work on that show, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. Because that's just not in the, that's not in the show's voice. Uh, you recently worked on uh, the CISO show, Gentlemen Lobsters. I did. What was that like? It was a nightmare. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, it was great. I loved it. I loved it. Uh, the two guys who created the show were fantastic. Uh, the other writer we had was great. Um, I loved the show. I loved the concept of the show. You know, it was just two bros, two millennial Man. bros who happened to be lobsters. And, yeah, we just we just explored that. And it was super, super fun. Mm -hmm. Um, and really smart, I think. Like, I think there was a lot of stuff about that show that was that was smart. Uh, so that was a fun room. When you uh, have a show like that, with that concept, do you kind of view it, like, as a sketch type thing? And, you, like, as a mapping, like, of the millennial bros on the lobster? No, we treated it as, yeah. a, as, a, as a story show. You know, it was a sitcom. Um, and we were very... Because they had done a bunch of episodes before I came on board mm -hmm. for the GQ website that were like three minute long sketches. And I think that's why they got me involved in the process was so that it could be more story driven. I see. So, um, and that was, you know, that was one of the, you know, it's an animated show and that's kind of what I'm talking about, about location stuff. We did stuff on that show. Like we had an... We had an episode that ended with a helicopter crashing and exploding into a volcano. Uh -huh. We had another episode that ended with an entire town burning. And, like, that kind of stuff, you know, you couldn't do. And you couldn't even do that in in a movie unless it was a big-budget movie. Right. You know, but in animation, you can do that stuff. Uh, was that, like, a typical writer's room situation? No. It was very small. Yeah. It was literally four of us. Oh wow! Uh, it was the two creators, myself, and one other writer. Oh wow! So, are you, are you guys like uh, working together the entire time, or working separately? A lot of separate yeah. stuff there. Um, in fact, one of the guys was in a business school at Stanford at the time, so he Whoa. was flying back and forth twice a week to go to classes up there and then come down to work on the show. 
So a lot of times we'd have meetings or, or pitch sessions where he was just on uh, Skype or whatever. And it was pretty funny because, you know, the laptop would be in the middle of the table and he'd be talking, everybody would be talking, whatever. And then some other executive would come in and give us some notes or whatever and talk and not realize that he was on um, the, yeah. you know, and then all of a sudden he'd be like, I was thinking that, and the executive wouldn't know where that was coming from, you know? <laughs> uh, so w- would you say like uh, the same answer to the video versus stage would be mm-hmm. the same answer to like live action versus animation, just like location stuff? Or is there more differences in writing for that? Oh, I think there's more differences yeah. because the thing about animation also is that you can be way sillier. Like you can mm-hmm. do, you can do much bigger characters. I think in li- and sorry in animation and get away with it. You know, I mean that's one of the fun things about animation is like what's this character's voice? How do they talk? Um, and that's always something that in the writers' room on that. We- like once you find the character's voice, it all of a sudden just becomes hilarious, mm-hmm. you know, and that's when you know you found something. Is there like a difference in working with a streaming network versus like a a, a network on TV? Uh, only in that when you tell people you worked on the streaming network, they go, "I've never heard of that." <laughs> yeah, and then they go, "How do I find it?" And I go, "I don't know." <laughs> um. I mean, I loved CISO. They were great. Our executive, Kelsey, was fantastic and really great to work with. But it was hard to explain to people what it was and where it was and how to find it and how to get it. And I think, you know, I think that stuff is all still shaking out as far as how that's going to work going forward. Uh, but, you know, that was definitely a problem. Uh, you're currently working on Mr. Pickles. Well, not currently. Oh, not currently. But, but, yes, I just, yeah. you know... We finished writing around uh, Christmas time, and I'll probably go in next week and look at some of the some of the episodes and see where they're at and stuff. Uh, how'd you get that job? Well, that was the same uh, agent that I had spoken of earlier, who saw my little short film. Um, who's no longer an agent? He's now a producer, okay. um, and we've had a good working relationship over the past decade and a half, and. These two guys, again, it was two guys who created the show, and they sold it to Adult Swim. And then when they uh, were going to turn it into a, a series, um, they they wanted to bring in somebody with some story background. And so he called me and brought me in, and I met with them, and it's been true love ever since. <laughs> uh, and you were hired as the head writer. Yes, uh, so what are your responsibilities as a head writer? Run the writer's room, basically. Yeah. Um, and, you know, finalize everything and take notes from the network and take notes from the executives and, you know, all that stuff. Um, so it's my a head writer, very writing oriented. Yeah. Like it's not a showrunner position. I'm not involved in budget stuff or any of that kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know. So, so what do you do to like run a room? Like, what's your like methods of doing that? I make sure people don't chew gum. Yeah. I make sure they're in single file when we have a fire drill. Uh, no, again, it's the same thing. It's yeah. like sitting in the front of the room and going, "Okay, here's what we need to do." Who has ideas about this? And then going, "Okay, I like that idea. I don't like that idea. Let's keep. Let's explore this further." I mean, it's a very um, fluid process, you know, but. The, the head writer's job, in my opinion, is just to make sure that the ship goes in the right direction at all times, 
you know, um, and hopefully eventually you'll see land. So, uh, that's it. So it's a 15 minute show rather than a 30 minute show. Mm -hmm. So what are like the challenges of that? really an 11 and a half minute show uh and the challenges of that are how do you tell a full story in that short amount of time Mm -hmm. and on top of that with mr pickles how do you tell an a story and a b story right and a c story and a d story (laughs) and an e story in 11 and a half minutes uh because if you think about how much screen time each of those stories is going to get it ain't that much so you know, how can we pace this so that we get through all that stuff as quickly as possible? Are there certain, like, when you get a script, are there certain, like, on page two, this needs to be there, on page four? Uh, no, there's, we don't really have that, but we kind of have a, a sense of, like, where yeah. certain things need to happen, you know? Um, and sometimes in, a, in an outline or in a, in a script... We'll, we'll sit down and go, okay, this isn't happening until here, and it needs to happen sooner. Can we move these scenes around? Can we cut something? You know, it, that's, a, that's a good way to know that there's a problem with the story if an important moment isn't happening until later than it usually does. Right. Then you go, okay, what's the problem? You know, is there too much setup to this? Are we making it too complicated? And, uh, but we don't go into it going, okay, by page two, we need to do this by page five. We need to do this. Uh, that's not the, that's not the way. Mm-hmm. How, how long is it a script for that show? Like 12 pages? <clears throat> no. <laughs> uh, we've been trying to shorten them first year. We had some that were 17 and 18 pages long okay. and that always caused problems in production because, you know, then it was like, oh my God, it's. 16 minutes long and it needs to be 11 and a half minutes right. long. How do we cut this down? Um, last year we had a rule that the script couldn't be more than 15 pages long. And I think if there's another season, the rule will be that it'll be even shorter than that. Wow. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Jeez. And so then, uh, the animators take it, they animate it and then you have to even cut from that. A yeah. Lot of times. That's, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Will Carsola, who is one of the creators and who's also the director of, I think, all the episodes. He may, he may this year have let somebody else direct a couple. But he, and he also just edits them all himself. So he is, you know, he has the whole thing in his head and is able to say, okay, if we just take this one thing out, we won't miss it, but it'll cut down 12 seconds or whatever. Um, so it's literally that precise. It's not like live action where you kind of know what you have as you go along you know it's like not till you animate all this stuff do you know how long it's going to be with a show like this uh how do you build like the mythology out of like mr pickles well i think they came into it with a lot of the mythology built out and then as we went forward stuff would come up and it is a show that has a tremendous amount of mythology behind it to the point where I think I probably still don't even understand some of it. Um, But I think in the third season now, we're going to start to see a little bit of the mythology of like where this all started and how it came about. Um, Before that, it was just like, yeah, he's a dog who murders people and worships Satan, you know, but now it starts to get a little more complicated than that. But they always kind of had that in their heads from the beginning. Uh, so after the show, what would you like to be doing next? 
Uh, I'd like to be on a beach in Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I uh, you know, everybody wants to sell their own show. Yeah. I'd love to sell my own show. Um, and I'm trying to work on that. Mm-hmm. It would be fun to do. It's really fun to run other people's stuff. But I think that, you know, there's still some frustration of like, well, I think it should be done this way. And it's somebody else's show, so they think it should be done this way. And ultimately, they're going to win. Right. Uh, which isn't totally true, but sometimes it is. Mm-hmm. And and also that, that tension of like, the arguments of like, you know, no, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. Um, whereas I think if I had my own thing, I would only be arguing with myself, <laughs> which is what I've been doing my whole life, so... Uh, what advice would you give to like a, a young comedy writer out there? Go to Harvard. Yeah, <laughs> join the lampoon. Uh, um, no, I mean I think one thing that's true now that wasn't true when I was coming up is you can just go make your own stuff and put it out there. You know, you have so many resources at this point as far as I don't know whatever YouTube and so on and so forth that you know you make your video you put it on youtube you post it on facebook you put it up on you know whatever it's both a good way to just learn the craft and a way to possibly have people see stuff you know um and then the other the other the other piece of advice and this is advice i'm, I'm giving to myself as well is just write right 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 like right 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 you know uh because that's what you're saying you want to do and if you're not doing it, then you're not doing it. And it isn't really what you want to do. Uh, okay, so we're going to wrap up uh, with you giving your thoughts on something I wrote. This is a sketch pitch. Okay. Uh, all right. This is uh, this was a quick one. So uh, so it's a late night show. Uh, and it's like the host is having the show. He's dedicated to finding out uh, who killed his wife. Mm-hmm. So then he like has like a monologue. Uh, that it all relates to killing, to like who killed his wife. He has like a side, the sidekick is like the lead homicide detective. Uh, and then like his, I was kind of toying with like he'd bring on celebrity guests, but then he just tried to interrogate them about his wife. So mm-hmm. that's basically the idea. Okay. Uh, first of all, can I tell you that I made something like this once? Oh, you did? Yes. Oh, man. I'm trying to remember what it was. It was, it was not something I wrote, but I played. A talk show host who was yeah. obsessed with the death of his wife. Oh Jesus! And I oh, think wow. that I think that may still be up somewhere on YouTube. Uh, but huh. yeah, he was obsessed with the death of his wife, and the band leader kept on trying to get him to focus on the show more. Um, oh, I see. But so you're saying that the sidekick would huh. be the lead homicide detective? Yeah. And he would just ask the guests. Uh, I, I think it'd be funny to do it like. If the, the homicide detective was like uh, uh, almost like an Ed McMahon character, just yeah. like here's how I would set it up is that the the guest comes on and he the host says, so you have recently wrapped shooting on, um, you know, Mission Impossible six. Yeah. Let me ask you this. If you came home. And found your wife in a pool of blood with footsteps leading out the back door, you know, and just 
keep going back yeah, yeah. and forth, ping-ponging between mm-hmm. asking them about stuff and whatever. And then, meanwhile, the homicide detective is just chipping in, going, yes, pool of blood! You know? <laughs> uh, I think that might work. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, I'm bummed out that it's already been done. No, 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 no. It's not, it, wasn't, it wasn't exactly the same thing. I feel yeah. like his wife might have died in a car crash or something. Okay. I'm not, I don't remember. It was, it was right when I moved to L.A., so yeah. it was uh, 13... 13 years ago or something like that. Um, um, all right. Well, thanks for coming out. Anything you want to plug? Yeah. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Conroy. I also have a podcast called The Long Shot, which you can find at thelongshotpodcast.com. And I'm going to be going on tour in November and December. So sign up for my mailing list, which you can do at my website. And you'll find out if I'm coming to a town near you. All right, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Alan. Thanks for listening to this episode of On Comedy Writing. I want to thank Nick Doss for supplying the sweet tunes, Zachary Glassman for giving us the awesome logo, and Boardwalk Audio for hosting us. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and like and follow On Comedy Writing on Facebook and Twitter. See you next week. Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit boardwalkaudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.